Well, I don't think it's any surprise that we're going to be in the book of Job this morning. Uh, don't ask me after what castle that is. I don't know. It's, it's a castle. The title of the message this morning is Defending the System. And these are Job's three friends resuming their attacks against him. We're going to be actually looking at part of chapters 15, 18, and 20. But I want to go back a little bit and just kind of bring you up to speed of what we talked about the last couple of weeks. At this point in our study of the book of Job, we're in between the first and second conversations that Job was having with his friends. If you remember, they purposed to go and comfort Job during his extreme difficulty. All right. So far, we have seen that that has been a dismal failure. All right. Two weeks ago, we took the opportunity to apply what we have learned in relation to Job's three friends and how they have responded uh, to his situation. We compared the religious system of Job's day to what people believe today. We saw that nothing has really changed and that worldly religions are founded in experiences, traditions, and rules and regulations, uh, or some combination thereof. Last week, we summarized Job's spiritual path through his sufferings. During the conversation with his friends, we saw Job transform from total despair to putting his hope in a resurrection. And it's interesting, I talked to someone uh, after that, maybe even more than one person, they're like, how did Job know? Well, we, we don't know how Job knew. Um, there are other characters in the scriptures that say things, and it's like, Wait a minute, that wasn't in recorded scripture before that, right? So, so how did they know? And the only thing that we can understand is that there was more that God had told his people that he chose not to record at that time. That's just simply that. But what's interesting is anything and everything that Job is saying is not contradicting any other part of God's word. So, you know, that's, that's what's interesting about it, right? All right, so as we move on here then, um, as transition into the next round of conversations, let's be reminded of how we're approaching the book. I think it's healthy that we do that. And sorry, we're in the review part here. Um, how were we going to approach the book? This was, this was from my perspective as speaking to you how we we're going to do this. I wanted to take a literal interpretation of the book and make sure that we do that. There's a lot of poetic and, and, and flowery language in here. And frankly, we could, you know, go on different rabbit trails of that, but we wanted to, to just take it literally, meaning that sometimes when there is figurative language, it is literally figurative, right? I mean, that's, that's what it is. We want to focus on the practical rather than the academic. And, and folks, um, you know, it's, it's always a temptation, particularly on my part, right, to kind of get into, ooh, look at what this says, and look at how he says that, you know. And frankly, some of that is, is maybe not going to do you as much good as making sure that we're, we're you know, developing the, the main themes, which is where we're going here. We want to favor subjects over words, choose the concrete over the abstract, okay? Meaning, this is what he's saying as opposed to this is, you know, how things are being said and different points that are being made. And then center on the theme, not individual subjects, all right? So it's, it's kind of trying to keep our focus on the biggest things. It doesn't mean that we can't enjoy some things along the way. 
but we're not going to get caught up into those things as much. Um, and then primarily, once we have done that, encourage and facilitate personal application. I, I just want to state really quick, though, it doesn't mean that what is written here, it doesn't mean that any part is not important, okay? That's not what I'm talking about, and we'll get to that in just a minute. And then, then I, I challenged you with an approach. First was receive the book with fresh eyes. Um, a lot of times we hear a bunch about the beginning and the end of the book. We've talked about this before. The middle kind of, you know, I mean, if you think of like an Oreo cookie, the middle is supposed to be the good part, right? Um, some people even throw away the outside. Well, in this case, we're, we, we throw away the inside. Uh, and, and we don't really treat that all the time. And so we're going to kind of muscle through and do that. But we're going to need to exercise some endurance because there are some recurring themes. And my, my approach here is to try to keep it fresh and then make practical application and put that truth into practice, all right? We can understand scripture all day long, but we've got to do something with it. And so I think there's some really practical things in this book um, that obviously the word of God, but for, for many people's situations today or, or what we might even face in the future. Uh, the impact of the conversations that um, Job had with his friends. What's, what's the impact uh, that, that they have? First of all, the Lord had 80% of the book written for this reason, right? He, he recorded these conversations. That's 80% of the book, or for a reason. Job's three friends say similar things, but their unique perspectives matter. There's, there's, a, there's an angle that they're taking, just like we looked at when it was their view of, of the religious system of the day, right? These conversations reveal the character of Job. They reveal the character of his friends. And again, these are things that we can learn from. They also reveal what Job and his friends believed about God. And we have seen that come, and we'll see more of that today. And we can gain insight into how to minister to our friends. All right. Now, again, we've already talked about the fact that we need to apply Scripture to our lives. But there's some, there's some I think, practical warnings about how we should be approaching people in relation to how his friends approached Job. And then, continuing through the conversations, just to kind of let you know, here's where we're headed now. Uh, we, we've kind of taken the, the cumulative first round of conversations. We've made some application there. We've expanded and, 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 and looked at that as far as real world, how, how we're supposed to be dealing with those things. And now we're moving on. There are two more rounds of conversation remaining. Uh, I'm not sure why that did that. Uh, a fourth friend, Elihu, will surface later on and speak. There is some repetition from round one that we will see in the next rounds but there are also important developments. All is good, but not all needs to be preached. And that's where I was heading with that, okay? It's all good. Read it. Do your best to understand it. But for me to, to go through every term, right, especially in poetic language, um, it, it's, anyway, we're going to keep it moving. And then we will follow the established approach, okay? So what, what I said how I would approach the book, that's what we're going to do. For example, as we've been going through the book right now, even though we haven't touched on every phrase and every word, we've been pretty much going chapter by chapter. 
for these next three conversations, which covers multiple chapters, we're going to have three messages. Today's and then two as far as Job's responses are concerned. So we're going to go from like six to three. All right. And I don't think we're going to cheat anybody out of anything. But the point is, um, you know, that endurance, I know that there's only so much I can ask you to endure when it comes to kind of having the same things being said. All right. And let's face it, Job's tired of it too. Because <laughs> he's telling his friends, knock it off. Right. So here we go. From Job's perspective, he is seeing this and he is basically saying, I'm sorry, from his friend's perspective, they're saying this is personal. You have now spoken back to us and now we, we, we have a problem with you, Job. Now, we were already challenging you on some things, but now we've got a serious problem with you personally. In previous conversations, each of his uh, friends tried to encourage Job to repent and enjoy the blessings of spiritual restoration with God. If you look back on, on the chapters that were related to them, it always ended with, but listen, Job, if you just do the right thing, if you just follow the system, there, there, there's going to be some good things that happen. Now, Zophar, he threw a few verbal punches, but even he said about Job being restored, and I'm paraphrasing, your life will be bright as noonday. And that probably isn't a paraphrase. You'll be secure and safe because you'll, you will have hope and you'll be popular. You remember that? So, so what he's saying is life is going to be good. Just, just admit that you've sinned and fall into line. We've already established Job could not do that because that in and of itself would have been a violation because he would have had to have lied. In this round of speeches, each friend lays into Job. And again, it is even more personal. So let's look at what Eliphaz says first. And by the way, Eliphaz, um, he's, he's the, the lead guy. Um, his... His relationship is a little bit different than the other friends. Uh, and, and a lot of this is just kind of how it appears in the book. He goes first and he speaks longer, right? So he's leading this in some ways. And so it could be that he was just more prominent, more wise, older, or some combination thereof. But that's kind of where we see Eliphaz in this. So we're going to look at his... Um, and he has more, more to say anyway, but we're going to look at his um, uh, kind of initial rip on Job a little bit more than the other friends. So Eliphaz says, Job is hard-headed. That's, that's his premise here. Job, you're a stubborn man. So how does he do that? Job 15, 2 and 3 says this, Should a wise man answer with empty knowledge and fill himself with the east wind? Should he reason with unprofitable talk or by speeches with, what, with which he can do no good? So as he talks with him, and again, now Eliphaz is directly addressing Job, he makes a series of accusations against him. And since he's the head speaker, he's setting the stage for all this, right? 
So in these verses, Job is speaking, he's, this is all from his perspective, right? And we're going to say a lot of things from the friend's perspective. So even if I forget to say something about that, please understand, you've got to kick that into your thinking. This is what these guys are saying, not necessarily this is the truth. Even though they might be saying some truthful principles, it's not accurate in what they're saying against Job, okay? So basically, Eliphaz says, Job is speaking ignorantly, and what he is saying has no value. The east wind that he refers to was a hot, dry wind blowing from the desert. It was not only unpleasant, but it had no benefit to it, right? So that's, that's what he's saying. Job, what you're saying is worthless. He goes on to say in verses 4 through 6, Yes, you cast off fear and restrain prayer from, before God, for your iniquity teaches your mouth, and you choose the tongue of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you, and, and not I. Yes, your own lips testify against you. So what he's basically saying here is Job has no respect for God. His sinful acts and words prove that he has no respect for God. And it's especially his words, these speeches, that betray him and show him to be a liar. Now again, how can they make that case when we know something that they don't know? Right? Job is an upright and blameless man. God said that of him. So they're attacking him and, you know, he obviously has to take it to a degree, but that's what's taking place. So basically, you're a liar, right? Job 15, 7 through 10. Are you the first man who was born or were you made before the hills? You, you, can, you can hear just the nastiness, right? Have you heard the counsel of God? Do you limit wisdom to yourself? What do you know that we do not know? What do you understand that is not in us? Both the gray-haired and the aged are among us much older than your father. So here, Job, they're asking, do you think that you have a corner on wisdom? Do you think that you, have some you had some secret meeting with God and now you have this special information? that we don't have, that we don't hold? According to Eliphaz, he thinks, Job thinks, that he knows better than everyone else. So let me ask you this. And again, from their perspective, how receptive is a know-it-all? Right? See, that goes back to this idea. He's hard-headed. You, you, you think you know everything. That's what he's saying. And he goes on, we got this out of the ESV, just a little bit easier to understand as we're doing this. Are the comforts of God too small for you or the word that deals gently with you? Why does your heart carry you away and why do your eyes flash that you turn your spirit against God and bring such words out of your mouth? So here, Job doesn't appreciate the things the Lord has done for him. Just in case Job may have missed what Eliphaz was trying to communicate, he makes it perfectly clear what you are saying is going against God, right? And then in verses 15, I'm sorry, 14 through 16, and, and I, as we look at this, what is man that he could be pure? And he who is born of a woman that he could be righteous? 
If God puts no trust in his saints, and this is actually referring to probably angels, and the heavens are not pure in his sight, how much less man who is abominable and filthy, who drinks iniquity like water? How can Job claim to be clean before God? He doesn't have any confidence in man who constantly practices evil. The clear message is Job is a habitual, filthy, disgusting sinner. Now, we know that apart from Christ, that's true. We know that apart from faith, that's true. But again, we have God's testimony that is ringing in our ears about this man. Perfect? No. Blameless? Yes. So how's that as a start to uh, our message? <laughs> yeah, Job, Job isn't done suffering yet, is he? So now we're going to talk about Bildad. Bildad, Job is offensive. That's Bildad's message. And we're going to read just one portion of, of chapter 18. We've already looked at this passage, but I want you to see this. How long till you put an end to your words? Gain understanding and afterward we will speak. Why are we counted as beasts and regarded as stupid in your sight? You who tear yourself in anger, shall the earth be forsaken for you or shall the rock be removed from its place? So Bildad reacts to Job by accusing him of calling them stupid. He begins by asking when Job will stop talking. So again, this is getting very personal. It was personal before, now it's getting very personal. To this point, the friends have traded insult for perceived insult. Job described their help as worthless and hurtful. Remember that? But he, Bildad, orders Job to get informed and then they'll talk. You, you, can, you, can, you can see this, right? Look, I've tried to talk to you. Not that this has ever happened to any of us, right? Uh, you, you, you think what you think. You believe what you believe. Uh, you know, you're convinced of this, that, or the other thing. Look, go figure this thing out. Then we'll have a conversation about it, right? Because our conversations aren't doing any good. And sometimes we can have those conversations with five-year-olds, right? <laughs> you got it all figured out, buddy, you know? <laughs> Once you get informed better, then we'll talk. Because right now, you ain't listening, right? So what should Job be informed about? I mean, if Bildad is telling him, hey, you, you need to go figure this out. Bildad described Job as being in a crazed anger fighting a futile battle against God. That, that's how Bildad sees him. And then Bildad asks, and I'm paraphrasing that, that last verse there, should God change how he works just for you? Wow. You know, sometimes when you're talking with somebody, you know how they, they kind of put that stake in the ground statement or draw that line in the sand, right? Hey, you... You want to cross this, right? That's, that's what Bildad is doing here. You think you know better than God? Does God change for you? I mean, how do you answer that? And then we come to Zophar. By the way, we're going to see the other things that they say, but I wanted you to see just the big picture of they got a problem with him, all right? 
they're going to give some advice, but uh, right now they're just telling him what they think. For Zophar, Job is upsetting. Now, this isn't upsetting like, no, you're, you're, you're making me nervous, Job. Uh, no, he's upsetting like, this, this man is driving me nuts. All right? Therefore, my anxious thoughts make me answer because of the turmoil within me. I have heard the rebuke that reproaches me, and the spirit of my understanding causes me to answer. Okay? So I, I've listened to you insult me, and I, I, I can't take it. i got to say something. Like, I'm just, I'm boiling inside. I'm all upset. That's what Bildad is saying. I'm sorry, Zophar. So he responds a little bit different than Bildad about being insulted, right? He's a rules-based guy. So Zophar may be all churned up inside because what Job is saying doesn't make any sense to him. It doesn't add up. Based upon what Zophar says later, his emotional struggle seems to result from where he thinks Job is headed. And we're going to talk about that in just a few minutes. So what do we have here? We have these three perspectives I'm just going to go back for a second. Eliphaz, Job, Job's stubborn. He's a hard-hearted guy, hard-headed guy, maybe hard-hearted too. Job is offensive, right, according to Bildad. And then Zophar says, he's, he's just, he's got me all riled up. And so through all these different things, we're going to let him have it, <laughs> right? So what does Eliphaz do? Eliphaz, the way I want us to approach him is, the fearful life and death of the wicked. And we're going to be kind of working through chapter 15. So if you keep your Bibles open, you're going to kind of be able to work through that with me. I'm not going to read every verse, but, but uh, I, I want to work through a couple of parts of it. Let's remember that what we have here, and he, he reveals this, that there is a foundation to Eliphaz and its experience and tradition. Now, if you remember, he was the experienced guy. This is what I've seen. This is what I feel. These are some things I've experienced. And because of that, you need to change your thinking, Job, right? But now he's kind of throwing tradition in here as well, because look what he says. I will tell you, hear me, what I have seen, I will declare what wise men have told, not hiding anything, received from their fathers, right? So not only what I have experienced, but now I'm going to tell you what I have been informed of in the past. All this past information has also been given to me, and this is the perspective that I have. So that's what his speech is based upon. So what does he then say? He says, wicked people are tormented by fear. What Eliphaz says here is genuinely scary. But what all of the friends say, frankly, is scary. Now, again, I want to couch this. Some of what they're saying, principle-wise, is good stuff. There's some good warnings here to someone who was on the wrong path. And that's the problem with, with a system of belief. There's usually some or even a decent amount of good information there, but it's mixed with bad. So how much poison do you have to mix with something to make it poisonous, right? And that's the problem. 
So wicked people are tormented by fear. Look at what he says. And, and you notice, sometimes I'll highlight something to kind of have you catch. I can't highlight this because it's, it's all. I, I highlight the whole verses, all the verses. Dreadful sounds are in his ears. In prosperity, the destroyer comes upon him. He does not believe that he will return from darkness, for a sword is waiting for him. And then down to 24. Trouble and anguish make him afraid. They overpower him like a king ready for battle. Does, does this sound like a comfortable life? So what, what he's saying is, man, if you're outside of the system, you are in big trouble. Wicked people are tormented by fear. What else does he say? Rebellion is the cause of their doom. Now, I, I kept um, the, the one verse here just so we kind of keep it in context, keep it flowing. But it says, trouble and anguish make him afraid. They overpower him like a, ready, a king ready for battle. Then verse 25 and 26. For he stretches out his hand against God and acts defiantly against the Almighty, running stubbornly against him. Ooh, there's that word. With his strong embossed shield. So think about it. What, what, what uh, Eliphaz's picture of Job is, is that Job has his sword drawn, he has his shield in hand, and he's rushing at God. <laughs> that's, that, that's his picture of Job. He is in, in full-bore rebellion against the truth, against God himself. Now, here's the problem. We know that the opposite is actually what's taking place. We've already established the reason why they can think this is because they're steeped in this idea that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. Bad things are happening to Job. Job is bad. He goes on. Well, I'll go on. In summary, <laughs> the wicked come to nothing. To summarize the rest of the chapter, Eliphaz declares that sinful people can't beat the system because that's all he can be referring to. That's what he's steeped in. They will deceive themselves and come to a quick end. God dictates, and remember, this is, this is Eliphaz's perspective. God dictates without exception that those who rebel against him live in physical and emotional torment. All their riches and successes are futile. They produce nothing. Now, again, we didn't go into the, to the details of the rest of the passage. We'll see some of those later on because there are some, again, there, there's, there's some other perspectives that are given, but they're similar. But here we have this, this guy saying, look, he, he, how do I say it? I'll say it like this. I'm observing your life, and based upon my observations of your life, I'm coming to the conclusion, because of what I already believe, that the exact same things you're experiencing are because you're sinning. All right? Then we transition over to what Bildad says. Okay, so Eliphaz, the fearful life and death of the wicked. And Job, you're wicked. <laughs> okay? Bildad says the place of the wicked in an orderly world. Okay? The place of the wicked in an orderly world. What is Bildad's basis for um, this order? Is tradition. Let's be reminded of what he said in the previous round of conversations. 
You probably remember this, Job 8, 8 through 10. For inquire, please, of the former age and consider the things discovered by their fathers. For we were born yesterday and know nothing, because our days on earth are a shadow. Will they not teach you and tell you and utter words from their heart? Now, I just got to say something real quick. You have sometimes these same guys are saying, hey, what, what are we, chopped liver? Right? I haven't used that phrase in a long time. We know stuff. We're wise. We're smart. You're calling us stupid. But then you have him. Part of the basis is, well, we are stupid. Right? We don't know anything. So, so some of this, you see the contradiction. And that's one of the things that you're going to start, that we've already seen. There's some significant contradictions here, and we're not done with those yet. But this is one of them. Well, we're, we're really smart, but we're, we're not really smart. It all depends on the situation. Right? It all depends on how it fits my argument against you. When you think you're smart, we're smart. <laughs> So this is the basis of Bildad's view, that God's dealings with both the righteous and the wicked is consistent and well-ordered, right? That's what tradition helps us with. Everything in his place. As a matter of fact, he goes on to say, there's a place for the righteous and the wicked. Um, look at what he get, again says back in chapter 8. If you would earnestly seek God and make your supplication to the Almighty, remember, this is the invitation. Hey, turn around, Job. If you were pure and upright, if? Again, they don't know. Surely now you would awake, he would awake for you and prosper your rightful dwelling place. But then look at what he says on the end of the chapter in chapter 8. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame that's not so much as important as what we're looking at today, which is, and the dwelling place of the wicked will come to nothing. So this is not my imagination. This is, this is how Bildad sees life, that everything has its orderly place, and that's how God's designed things. And if we start to try to make disorder out of order, I've got a problem with you. Job, what you're saying doesn't fit. So let's talk a little bit more about what this place of the wicked is. I just want to kind of run through this uh, chapter, the chapter that we're in now, chapter 18, and give you just what he says. And we're going to just do this quickly. Verse 6, his tent, the shelter of his tent in verse 14, in his tent on his dwelling. Now, this is now talking about what? The wicked person. His roots, his dwellings, verse 19, dwellings of the wicked, and then 25, the place of him who does not know God. So his theme is all about your place, where you live, where you're at, how you fit. All right? And this is all about the wicked. So now let's expand on this idea and look at what he actually says. The place of the wicked described. His light goes out and his tent is dark in verses 5 and 6. And again, like I say, if your book is open, Bible is open, you can follow along and see these things. He creates his own trouble. There are multiple 
references to net, snare, noose, etc. All about the fact that this guy, this wicked person, is creating obstacles for himself. He's creating a trap for himself, and it's going to spring on him, and then he's going to have to live with the results. Terrors frighten him on every side in verse 11. His strength fails, and he says that multiple ways in verses 7 through 12. Disease will destroy him, verse 13. He's uprooted from his dwelling, and he dies. And then no one remembers the wicked person, and he leaves no one behind. When he's gone, he's gone. And what is his conclusion? Verse 18, chapter 18, verse 21. Surely such are the dwellings of the wicked, and this is the place of him who does not know God. Wow. Now again, if, if, if we just took what, what um, um, Bildad says, and we, uh, and we applied that to just everyday people, everyday living, we would look at it and say, man, there's some really good stuff here. As a matter of fact, one commentator said, I could take this, I could pull this out, I could preach this. But it's misapplied. Right. It's all misapplied. So how does Bildad defend the system in this second speech? He does it by strongly reinforcing his view that the present and future condition of the wicked is set. Their course does not alter. Righteous, the righteous are blessed and the wicked are cursed. So we've got to remember, earlier Bildad asked Job if, if he was an exception, right? D does the rock move? <laughs> Was he supposed to have an exception made for him just because he was throwing a fit? That's what Bildad asked him. So in summary, Bildad warned Job that he was under God's judgment. And I want to refer back to verse 18 of this chapter. He is driven from the light into darkness and chased out of the world. The judgment that judgment would result in Job being driven out of the world of the living and into a place of darkness. What's Bildad's bottom line message? Job, you are going to hell. <laughs> wow. Now, again, just very briefly, let's make some application. Unlike the um, mentality that we can put a bumper sticker on the back of our car that says coexist and everybody gets along, right? Religions don't get along because there are different religions. I believe this way, therefore, if you believe that way, you're wrong. Now, there are some exceptions. Some religions are like, hey, whatever, man. You know, whatever you want to do. Because we're all going to the same place. Unfortunately, their direction finder is wrong. I'm not being mean about it, but it's true. Okay? So anyway, that's, that's where we're at, okay? 
He's telling Job, you are, you are not only heading in the wrong direction, but that wrong direction is going to be separation. All right? Then we come to Zophar. The crimes of a condemned life. Now, one of the things we need to understand here is we're not looking at Job's responses right now. We will look at that within the next couple of weeks. He responds in between each one of these friends, but we're looking at the friends as a whole. So we need to understand that Zophar is responding to what Job has said to Bildad and probably Eliphaz as well. Okay, He backed up Bildad when he said that God was desig uh, has designated a specific place for sinful people. Bildad's speech was more about ordered destiny, and Eliphaz described a short, troubled life for those who rebel against God. Right? That's what we looked at so far. Zophar focuses on the actual sins committed by the wicked. Now, it's not an extensive list, but there's a lot represented here. And he also just talks about the term evil and wicked. Okay, so that that's kind of, you know, encompasses a lot of things. But as opposed to basically looking at those more specific things like Bildad and Eliphaz did, he's or more general things, you know, rebellion and that kind of idea, he's going to be talking about some specifics. So what does he say? Success and happiness is short-lived. Now, we've already heard that a little bit, but look at how he, he, he um, uh, markets this to, to Job. Do you not know this of old, since man was placed on the earth, that the triumphing of the wicked is short, and the joy of the hypocrite is but for a moment? Now, remember, this, this comes from some of the things that they've already planted some seeds about this, right? Because in their minds... According to the religious system of the day, when, when somebody gets out of line, man, God is right there. Bam! And he corrects them, he stops it, and if they don't stop, they're dead. They will not benefit from their evil. Okay, that's, that's what Zophar is saying. So again, this is getting a little more specific. A lot of verses here, but I just want you to see a couple of things that he says. They try to enjoy their, their evil food. They relish it, but it turns to poison and they bring it back up. Now, folks, there's a couple of graphic things here. Um, maybe it's good that the kids aren't here because, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily want all the kids. You know, yeah, that was Pastor Scott's puke message, you know what I mean? But, but that's, that's where we're at. What he says over and over again is this, that as... They try to swallow what they're enjoying. It makes them sick, and they bring it back up again. They never really get to actually fully enjoy it. There, there's even this picture of them putting it in their mouth and just savoring it. Mm, mm, this is so good. This wickedness is so delicious. Until they try to actually swallow it. All right? Not trying to spoil anybody's lunch. Okay? So let's say this again. They try to enjoy their evil like food. They relish it, but it turns to poison and they bring it back up. Why? Because they're proud. That was, that was one of the main sins that he talks about. They're proud. Let's just look at verse 6. I, I, I can't not look at this one. Though his haughtiness mounts up to the heavens and his head reaches to the clouds. Right? How much... How much more elevated can you get than that? 
right? You know, this is our version of his head couldn't fit through the door, right? They're proud. Also, they are dishonest in business. There's terms here about them getting rich, but it's not the good old-fashioned way where you are doing something, providing something or whatever, and then someone pays you for it. It's, it's manipulation. It's somehow trying to get away with it. It's gaming the system. And they are cruel to the poor. But folks, I'm just telling you right now, when, when he's talking about people that are evil, he is accurate about that. But again, he's attributing all of this to Job. And then he says, they are never satisfied. He also describes in the next verses, verses 20 through 29, a horrifying punishment is waiting for them. Verse 23, it says that God showers them with his anger. That's, that is an amazing poetic picture, isn't it? It's like, it's like rain coming down on them. They flee one consequence only to be struck by another. And he uses the picture of arrows, right? Some arrows are coming his direction. He turns another direction and they get him. God runs them through with a deadly blow. And folks, the, the picture here is probably a sword being thrust into them and coming out the other side. Coming out the other side, gleaming in blood. Okay, like I said, it's graphic. So this is Zophar saying, hey, look, <laughs> this life that they're leading, it's, it's bad stuff. Job, wake up, right? And then God will torch everything he possesses. He's just going to raise it. He's going to just wipe it out. All in heaven and on earth will witness his guilt. That's what 27 tells us. So I ask the question, when you look at that list, isn't it obvious that he's talking about Job? When you think back of what Bildad said, he doesn't, he doesn't have anybody coming after him. Well, what happened to all Job's kids? They were destroyed. His skin is rotting off of him. Hmm. Sounds a little familiar. So here they are, each one of them, hitting Job literally right where he's living. So just to think about this, Eliphaz is telling Job, look, you are experiencing right now a fearful life and you're going to experience death. Bildad says, there's a place for you, right? There, there's, there's a category for you and this is what it is. And it's not good. And then Zophar says, here's the crimes that God has against you. Wow. <laughs> so what are we to learn by hearing these friends defend the system? We need to understand what Job's friends said in order to make sense of Job's responses to them. So part of why we had to go through this is because 
Job is now going to turn around in the next couple of weeks and, and respond to these things. And so, okay, we can look at his response, but unless we know what he's actually responding to, it's not going to make a lot of sense to us. So that's part of why we need to go through this. But this religious system can take many forms, but they all have something in common. Within the system, all or part of a person's salvation is based upon their works. It is dependent upon what they do. Now, salvation, right? Because every one of them said, you are heading in the wrong direction to the point where you're going to be cut off. Okay? There's no other way to say that, but that they're going to be beyond rescue. Job will be beyond rescue. Job will be separated from God in hell. There's, there's, no other, there's no other way to look at it. Their purpose was to impose man-made standards on Job rather than consider God's standards. The system is harsh and cruel because it brings no relief. That's another thing we need to understand. So when someone says, you know what? Um, there's all these different beliefs and everything. You know, you know what I really believe in? I just believe that we need to love each other. There are millions and millions of people that are going to be loved to hell. They're being approved by what they do all the way to being separated forever from God because the system is cruel. The system says, this is how you please God, and it's a lie. It doesn't matter what form it takes. Satan, think about this. Satan told God that the only reason Job was righteous was because of what he got out of it. You remember that? He said, if you take away Job's benefits, he will curse you to your face. Right? He's just in it because he's doing well. You cut him off and he'll cut you off. Now, by the way, did Job fulfill what Satan said? No. Not in either occurrence. Job did not sin against God, right? But this was interesting because we're talking about now this whole idea of defending this system that they have. Job's friends have said, in one way or another, by claiming to be righteous, when we know by your circumstances you are being judged, you are cursing God. You need to repent, get right with God by following the system, and then you'll be blessed. Every friend has advised Job to do exactly what Satan accused Job of doing. <laughs> They're telling Job to do what they think will make God happy so that Job can be happy. Am I wrong? That is what each of them has said. Man, Job, if you just, just get on board, because if you do this, life's going to be good again. They had no room 
in their thinking. It was beyond their comprehension that a good person could possibly experience anything really negative, but especially what Job was going through. It, it literally broke their minds. Which is why they're coming at him so hard. But based upon their own standards, this is a question that I have for them and I have for us and I have for the world. What makes these three friends think that they aren't in danger of the very troubles that they say await Job? What's the standard? See, this is the problem. How good is good? This is what the system of its own making, a, a system of its own making, always reveals. If it's not God's plan, if it's not God's truth, it is always going to reveal that it can't work. Amen. I had a recent conversation about today's man-centered religious system with another church member. I can't remember who it was. I apologize. But they... You probably will tell me afterward, but they they shared with um, they had shared at one time with one of their Roman Catholic friends, and they asked the person, "Will the Pope go to purgatory?" And the friend said, "Yes." All right. Uh, apparently, that has shocked some other Catholics. Um, and by the way, I'm not, I'm not trying to just rip on Catholicism here, but what I want want to see is this: uh, that person was wrong. Neither the Pope nor anyone has ever or will ever go to a place where their spiritual sins are going to be burned off between death and heaven in order to get to heaven. It, it doesn't exist. It isn't going to happen. But the reality is at least this person was consistent with their system of belief. Because if the Pope isn't perfect, then he's got a little burning to do before he goes to heaven. Again, I'm not saying it's, that's right. So when someone says, wait a minute, no, 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 no. The Pope is the Pope. He's not going to go to purgatory. Right? See how it doesn't work? There's an exception for the Pope. Why? I mean, let's, let's push it because that is, that's pushing it. Push the system. Why does he get exempted? He's a holy man. Really? Sinless. Well, he's confessed everything. He has a right view of gender. Ah. <laughs> you see where I'm going? So here's my point. If the Pope can't make it through his own efforts and has to be prayed out of there, what do any of them have any hope? Right? It doesn't work, and that is a cruel, horrible thing. The point is, if you drill down into any and every belief system void of the good news of Christ and the grace of God, you slam into the wall of human effort. And that effort can never be enough. And we are warned about it over and over and over again in Scripture, and people still say, I got this. So who are the proud? Who are the stubborn? 
Who are the ones who want to roll evil around in their mouth and try to swallow it down over and over and over again and say, I'm good? It's not Job. It's not a man of faith who says, I need to be forgiven. My sin needs to be put away from me and I need a savior. And I need someone to give me life after this one is over. That's what Job was trusting in. That's who Job was trusting in. And we'll see more of what he says in the future. So this is exactly what Job understood and what he rightfully reacted against. Again, how can I, I'm kind of being Job for a second here, how can I agree with you? First off, you're telling me that I'm this wicked, vile, horrible sinner, and, and I'm not. I, I'm, 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 um, I can't think of the right word here. I'm right with God presently. Okay? I have kept right with God. Not perfect, but blameless. Amen. And now you're telling me that because of my circumstances, it proves that I'm an evil person. That I have all these secret sins that only, obviously, you know about. Well, actually, they think that he knows about them. He's just not revealing them. And I am going through a horrific punishment. When we know the exact opposite is taking place. So he can't agree with them. He also can't agree that the whole key to this is what we do. He's basically telling them, no, you don't understand. This is not working. That's what I've been able to see through my horrible circumstances. I don't understand what's going on. This is all really a mystery to me. I'm begging God to show me, to tell me, to rescue me. And I'm trusting that he will do it. But in the meantime, I have no idea what's going on. I just know that I'm at the end. And now you're telling me I'm there because I'm an evil person. Next week, we're going to look at the first of two parts of Job's response to his friends. And I'll just say this, you know, we don't know exactly how Job received what he did, but clearly God gave him some understanding of things. And by the way, I'm not, I'm not saying that there weren't some things that were revealed to his friends. It's just that there was this, there was this idea that was developed that there's this right way of believing and this is what we have to do, right? But Job is going to respond to his friends and, it, and it's going to be, uh, well, let's just say it'll be biblically accurate even though he doesn't have one, <laughs> right? Which is even, I don't know if the word cooler is a word, but it's cooler, right? It's, it's more amazing than us just quoting verses. Which also shows that this was inherent to who Job was. He really, truly was a person of faith, of someone who took God at his word just like Abraham did. Right? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we just consider the challenges that we face sometimes of those who come at us, so to speak, or react against us when 
we encourage them to consider that getting right with you is really all about what you do, not what we do. We are told in your word that Christ is a rock of offense. Everyone is going to stumble at that. Lord, you know us. You know our pride and you wrote it. You wrote about it. Every one of us are, are ultimately going to be offended before we come to Christ. But you also said that for some, they're going to be crushed by it. It is something that they're not going to be able to overcome. Now, again, we're looking at this from the human perspective. But Heavenly Father, I just pray that if there's even someone here who's looking at life and saying, I'm, I'm good. I got this. I, 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 I'm a good enough person. I pray, Lord, that they'll see that there is no such thing. There really isn't. That our righteousnesses, according to your word, are as filthy rags. That our very best isn't even just not good enough. It's nothing. That we wholly, completely need the righteousness of Jesus Christ applied to us by trusting in his death, burial, and resurrection. And that alone. Heavenly Father, I also pray that as we, who are followers of yours, would understand that there are pressures all around us to succumb to some type, some flavor of somehow working toward your approval. Lord, we, we know we are going to be blessed Maybe not in the ways that we think, but we're going to be blessed when we obey you. There is definitely something about that. But Father, I pray that it's born out of love and it's born out of appreciation and it's born out of a desire to please you and not just to fit into a mold. But that it's a passionate willed, determined desire to have a flourishing relationship with you. Getting everything else out of the way just like Job did. And simply loving you and obeying you for who you are. And yes, even what you've done for us. God, we thank you for a life of hope based upon not what we have done, but based upon what Christ has done for us, based upon your sending your son, you giving him, and in turn, giving us eternal life. In Christ's name, amen.